Prologue. Now that I've connected the two narratives of my experience with Pip, I've also connected with an anger I've never allowed myself to feel. A deep, powerful anger. I've listened to Trojan Horse more times than any other episode. I'm struck each time by how I managed to keep separate the joy in having kissed Pip from the horror of his raping me. These memories exist both together and apart. I've struggled with depression for most of my life. For me, much of my depression was caused by unresolved anger turned inward upon myself. When my father was still around, I literally ate the rage I never dared to feel. After my rape, I pushed my rage down and did my best not to look at it. And as usual, my mind slightly scrambled my memory in an effort to shield me by making me older. Now, I'm allowing myself to embrace my rage and it feels healthy and cleansing. And at times, between that episode and this, I've felt deep sorrow and loss. My reaction has been an important reminder to me that we never fully recover from trauma. We learn to manage it. We learn to live with it. It can teach us valuable lessons, but we never completely recover to the degree where the thing never happened and there's zero residual impact. For me, recovery is an aspirational goal. It is a path, not a destination. Recovery is comprised of reviewing the damage, doing the work to unpack and sort it, and adjusting my perspective or behavior accordingly. At its core, recovery is about learning new ways to cope and developing new tools to make different, healthier choices. Recovery facilitates the process of healing. I stay on my path to recovery because it gets me to the next phase of my life, whatever, wherever, and whenever that may be. The journey is the thing. In the same way, the questions are sometimes more helpful than the answers. My rape impacted my emotional context for all of my future intimate relationships. How could it not? Sometimes I'm aware of this impact, and sometimes I'm oblivious. For most of my adult life, I believe I was oblivious, because an awareness of my rape's impact on me would have required me to do the work I kept avoiding. If I didn't look at it, it couldn't hurt me or so I chose to believe. I recently met the husband of a woman I befriended a couple of years ago. She'd taken headshot photos of me for work, and we instantly clicked. My husband and I had them over one evening this summer, and we learned he has a seven-year gap in his memory. Nothing. No memories at all. They shared with us how, as they started planning to have a family, they discussed whether or not he should see a therapist to try and recover the missing memories. And in the end, they decided against it. Those memories are gone for a reason, he said. I'm not sure the value of recovering any of that offsets the risk of damaging who I am today and what I have now. I respect that. Digging around one's trauma can be a mixed bag. The rage I tapped into after producing Trojan Horse has come out sideways at my husband a time or two. He knows the personal work and healing I'm doing through Skyborne. He gives me the space to process. He empathizes, but he will never truly understand. On one level, I'm glad that he can't. If he could, it would mean he'd been through some experience so painful to allow him to understand. I wouldn't wish the physical or psychological trauma I've endured on him or anyone else. On another level, his inability to truly understand is frustrating and leaves a space between us. 
but it's my work to do, not his. I don't abuse his grace or support, which I'm very lucky and grateful to have. Emotional intimacy, frankly, can be very uncomfortable for me. When I do lash out, we take the time to revisit and repair any collateral damage and move forward together with a better understanding of one another's needs. I made it through several therapists over the last 30 years and managed to evade discussing my rape in any detail. I've always taken a triage approach to therapy, tackling the current most important issue I was facing at any given time in my life. I've had plenty in my queue. Call it triage or deflection. It's probably a bit of both. Coming to terms with my sexual orientation was one of my primary concerns. One's sexuality is simply a part of who they are. But in the 80s, the world, due in large part to AIDS, made it all of who one was. I had to prioritize dealing with my sexuality accordingly. The pressure to explain why I wasn't in a relationship mounted the older I got. I'm not, by nature, an evasive person, nor do I like to lie. But I wasn't able at the time to tell someone, that's none of your business. I was a pleaser with no boundaries. In the process of seeking therapy for one issue, I could sometimes apply the lesson learned to other areas. Somewhere along the way, I managed to manage, even if only faking it until making it, which requires more energy and grit than many realize. Like dissociation, faking it can help you survive all sorts of things, but it takes precious energy. Beautiful moments turned to tragedy are particularly painful. I feel a bit schizophrenic that I am able to hold the beauty and intensity of my first kiss in one hand and the tragedy of having had that same person rape me in the other. He took things from me that were not his to have, my trust and sense of safety, and he replaced them with guilt and shame. My brother had done the same thing to me, as had my father. These were years when I had no language for my sexual milestones. In high school, friends would occasionally ask me if I was a virgin. I never knew how to respond to that. What defines virginity when you remove heterosexuality from the equation and replace it with sexual exploration with someone of your own sex? Did being pimped out by my brother to blow older boys count as having lost my virginity or just my innocence? After my experience with Pip, either before or after his rape, did that count as having lost my virginity? It did to me on both counts. In the absence of intercourse, I viewed the act of losing my virginity as having shared my body willingly with another adult. But then the intercourse came as an extension of the rape, and like it or not, I felt that qualified as having lost my virginity. Not that I would have been able to articulate any of that nuance, nor was I ready for any detailed discussion with anyone regarding my sexual orientation. The pressure from my parents and society to be one particular thing that was not a comfortable fit for me left me feeling as if I was lying and evading. Silently carrying my rape and the fear about possibly having AIDS was emotionally exhausting. I felt keeping this information from Dan was a lie of omission, which made me feel like a bad friend. Skyborne, Episode 11, Airborne, by K.G. Lockrooms. Having nowhere else to put the pain or anxiety of my rape, I did my best to channel everything into school. 
I spent most of my free time at a nearby university's library. It was enormous and I could disappear inside for as long as I wanted or needed without any explanation beyond, I'm going to the library. Whatever I couldn't control through the distraction of classes, I self-medicated with hash. I had become friends with a sporting goods manager from Kmart. His side hustle was selling weed, and he always asked if I wanted to become a customer. I don't like pot. It makes me feel out of control, and after my rape, my hypervigilance escalated. My world had expanded, and so too did the amount of energy I was expending to be aware of everything going on around me at all times. I always knew how many people were near to me, how to get to the nearest door or escape, and analyze those around me for any potential physical threat. All day, every day, everywhere I went. It consumed so much energy, and I couldn't shut it off. Drinking with Dan at his parents' house was fine for the weekends, but sometimes I needed something to get out of my head and numb the pain during the week. Sleep continued to be elusive. I eventually approached my weed-dealing friend. Try this, he said, and handed me a wad of a dark, resin-like material that was tacky to the touch. What is it? Hash. It's like pot, but different. You have to smoke it with a pipe. Here, take this one. I got a new one last week. And he gave me a short wooden pipe with a metal screen at the bottom of the bowl. How do I use it? He showed me, sold me some hash, and set me on my way. I liked it. I didn't care for the smell or how heavy it made my lungs feel, but it gave me a mellow buzz. I kept my use of it to myself. It was my in-case-of-emergency escape route. During these years, I felt broken on so many fronts. I didn't meet expectations about getting into a good college. I wasn't meeting expectations regarding my sexual orientation. I felt deep shame about my sexual abuse. I was carrying the weight of my rape and I was worried I may have been given a death sentence. All the while pretending everything was fine. Everything was just fine. I don't know if I went through some cognitive developmental gate, or if I wasn't challenged enough in high school, but that fall of my freshman year of college, I was suddenly excelling in school. I was also investing more energy into my education, once homework had become my primary distraction to keep my mind off of everything else. I went from my steady stream of C's in high school to almost straight A's. My academic success kept me from spinning out and completely losing my shit. The community college was full of people of all ages, and I genuinely enjoyed not being in classes solely with people my own age. My classmates ranged in age from 18 to 60. It was a wonderful cross-section of demographics and motivations. Some of us were just starting out. Some were starting over and some were keeping promises to themselves after they'd already retired. I generally found people my own age boring. Whenever there was a group project, I gravitated to people older than me. I learned more from them, and they tended not to ask a lot of personal questions. A couple months after my rape, I began having terrible pain in my lower abdomen. At first I thought it was gas, but it progressed and changed and seemed to radiate from my anus. Driven by fear, I eventually went to my family doctor. I've been going to his practice since I was born. As he neared retirement, he added a physician's assistant to his practice. The first time I met his PA was when I needed a physical to join a soccer team the summer between my junior and senior years of high school. It was my first hernia check, which meant it was the first time a doctor had touched my genitals since my circumcision. And as many young men do, 
I started to get aroused. It was completely mechanical. At 17, touch equal direction. Noticing my arousal, he said, relax. You try relaxing when someone is touching your penis, I shot back. He found that funny, and the ice was broken. When I called the office about my rectal pain, I made an appointment specifically with him. What brings you in today, Kit? I ran through my symptoms. Can you think of any physical trauma, or did it just start out of nowhere, he asked. It just started out of nowhere, I lied. Any history of colon disease in your family? Not that I'm aware of. He made a referral to a gastroenterologist who wanted to do an exploratory procedure to rule out cancer or other injury. I don't know how this ever came to happen, but the doctor examined my descending colon as an office visit with a scope and no anesthesia or sedation. As the doctor introduced air into my colon, along with the scope, the pain was quickly intolerable. I gave a shout in painful surprise. The doctor is forcing air into your colon so he can see. Push back against the gas wherever you feel it on your abdomen. It will help with the pain, the nurse said. Bull shit, I thought. I'd unwittingly put myself in a position that reminded me of my rape. Like my rape, it was painful. And like my rape, I was begging for it to stop. I can't take this, I said at one point. The pain from the air being used to inflate my colon was excruciating. We're almost finished, the doctor said. After the procedure... I went home and got high. I can't imagine that was a standard medical approach. And if it was, shame on whatever board signed off on that. It was inhumane. It revealed nothing and re-traumatized me. For the next week, it made my condition, whatever it was, worse. I felt as if I'd been medically raped. My actual rape put me as far back in the closet as I could go. I had no interest in being with another guy. And until I knew my health status, I wouldn't anyway. I could not, in good conscience, engage in any intimate contact with anyone. I wouldn't even share a drink or food with a friend. The information I had access to regarding how AIDS was transmitted was inconsistent at best. Of course, underneath, I was still trying to figure out my sexual identity. I had my first wet dream as a freshman in college, which developmentally was about six years late. I stopped masturbating after my rape. I just couldn't bring myself to engage in any form of sexual gratification, which is probably why the dream happened. Of course it was a dream of a guy in my weightlifting class. I was back to my deflection of, oh, I just want to look like him, to explain why I spent so much time looking at and thinking about him. Liar. A local university radio station carried the Dr. Ruth show. It was broadcast late at night, and I would listen as often as I could. Sex ed in high school was limited to heterosexual activity and the basic facts of anatomy. I needed a better level of education, and her frank discourse made discussions about sex both educational and entertaining. My mother, having worked for a gynecologist for so many years, provided enough of an education about the female condition as dinner conversation. What I needed was insight into my own body and sex. There was also a local independent radio station that carried a gay magazine-style show which discussed politics, AIDS, community resources, and the history of homosexuality and society. I learned so much about the gay experience in that program, including what I needed to know relevant to when and where to get my AIDS test. I didn't know if Pip would use a condom, and I had to assume the worst. 
Getting tested was the only responsible thing to do. I needed to know for my own peace of mind, one way or another. For six months, I was in stasis. All because Pip had introduced this uncertainty into my body. That winter, I was finally able to arrange an AIDS test and drove myself to the clinic for the blood draw. While there, I was also given an education by the clinic staff about what was safe, safer, and risky sexual behavior. I left with information and a pocket full of condoms. A couple weeks later, I got the result and learned I was HIV negative. I could feel something uncoil inside me. In an early episode of the podcast, I mentioned how when I was young, I would often hear the disembodied voice of a black woman who would tell me that I would be okay after having been abused by my father. I also used to occasionally see figures, more like apparitions, in the doorway of the bedroom I shared with my brother, always women. They would look at me with concern or empathy, but never spoke. As I got older, around middle school, I could accurately guess which episode of a TV show would be aired as a rerun each night. We'd be eating dinner, and it would just pop into my head. I was right far more often than not. I was also able to guess what temperature my father's mood would be before he came home, in such a way that I'd know if I was going to get the belt or not. By the end of high school, Dan was often amazed how I could hear a song on the radio for the very first time and sing along to lyrics I'd never heard before. How do you do that? He once asked me as I sang along to a new Whitney Houston song playing through his car radio. Do what? How can you sing along to a song you're just hearing? I don't know. I'm just singing what seems like the next natural thing. This, whatever it was, has been with me for so long, I don't really think much about it. I was grateful when I read Stephen King's The Shining in 8th grade. There was a character in the book that could do things that were similar to this, and he referred to it as a shine. It made me feel better to know it was a thing, and from that point on, I just accepted it. My shine works in a number of ways. If I'm trying to find something, whether I was the last person to use it or not, I will get a hunch as to where that thing is. I'm almost always right. This also works for the people who are emotionally connected to me. I can't explain it, but the information just pops into my head. Someone may say to me, I wonder where I put X, and I'll say something like, check the cabinet. What? What cabinet? I don't know. I just see it in a cabinet. I'm right often enough that it's noteworthy and something I just accept. Another way this works is when it comes to the outcome of some event. For example, if someone invites me to do something and I can imagine it happening, it will happen. But if I spend no time thinking about it or I can't see it happening, it typically doesn't. Are you excited about going to the party Saturday? I'll be asked. I don't know. I don't see it happening. And invariably, the host will call at some point and say the party has been canceled. This also happens in regard to running into people. Not people in my day-to-day orbit, but some random person I don't normally see. I'll start thinking about them for a few days, and there they'll be, on some random hiking trail, in the store, on the sidewalk next to me, or they'll call me. I was particularly connected to telephone calls for some reason. The phone would ring, and I'd just feel who was on the other end. Mom, it's for you, I'd call out. Hello? She'd answer the phone, and then she'd cover the mouthpiece and say, How do you do that? I didn't know. I still don't know. Am I sending out some signal to those people and attracting them, or am I just receiving some signal from them? The more complex the issue is, the better I need to know the person for it to work. 
as if some ethereal connection gets established. I used to obsess over it, but I've learned to accept it. It's just part of the mystery of me. Other than whether or not an event I've been invited to will occur, I really can't predict anything specific to myself. I can't guess my way through a test. I didn't see the car accidents coming. I can't predict lottery numbers. I didn't foresee my rape. It's usually just mundane things. After my rape, my shine morphed, and I'd occasionally get specific and intimate details about other people's lives. Only friends, and for some reason, only my female friends. It is somehow correlated to the emotional depth of the relationship. The stronger the friendship, the deeper the bond, the more likely I am to know something I would otherwise have no logical way of knowing. The first time this happened was the spring after my rape, when I'd gone to visit Diane at college. We were walking the campus and catching up about our lives. How are things with Bill? I asked. I don't want to talk about him, she replied. We walked along in silence. Diane, you had an abortion. I said this as a statement of fact, not a question. She stopped dead in her tracks, startled. She turned toward me and gave me a penetrating stare as her face turned bright red. I don't know, I said. I just know. Her eyes filled with tears. Yes, earlier this week. I put my arm around her and held her until she regained her composure. We started walking again. I don't want to talk about it, she said. Just know I'm here for you if you need me. We walked on in silence. Whatever happened between you and Pip, she asked. I don't want to talk about that either, I said. That bad, she asked. That bad. The semester ended. I made the dean's list and was invited to join the National Honor Society for Junior Colleges. My mother bragged all her friends and told me how proud she was of me, which pissed me off enormously, given her sole contribution to my college education was an electric typewriter. Diane came home for the summer, and we began hanging out regularly. We'd go shopping or just drive the backcountry roads. One of us would manage to get beer or wine coolers, and we'd drink as we would get lost and spend hours finding our way back home. One Saturday morning, I called to see if she wanted to go for a joyride that evening. Yes, my mother is driving me crazy, she said. Although Tony and I were seeing each other less and less, we did occasionally play tennis together. And as he had turned 21, I got him to buy me some beer. After tennis and hitting the liquor store, I came home, got cleaned up, put some beer in the cooler, grabbed some snacks, popped the hatchback, loaded the car, and headed to Diane's house. I was a responsible driver after the incident with my mother's first new car, and Diane could never show up at her house drunk. There'd be no end to it. I knew I'd never be able to live with myself if I ever hurt someone driving drunk. At six foot two and 180 pounds, I would never have more than two, and it was never an issue. What I hadn't anticipated was the rain, the deer, and a pothole. We'd intentionally gotten ourselves lost and were working our way home. It was dark at this point and had started raining. We were on a road that was flanked on the passenger side by a stream down an embankment and a steep high hill on the driver's side. I was navigating an almost U-shaped bend in the road when a deer leapt out from the hillside and landed in our lane, frozen in place by my headlights. Kit! I hit my brakes, the pothole, and we began to hydroplane. We glided toward the guardrail, separating the road from the stream going about 40 miles an hour. The top of the guardrail was about a foot above the height of the road. We slid off the road and were airborne. 
Heading sideways toward the guardrail and the stream below, both of the passenger side wheels hit the rail, flipping the car over. We were in flight, upside down, held in place by our seatbelts as gravity took over. Something punched the roof of the car over my head, just as my skull collided with same. Simultaneously, the back hatch popped open. The car landed on its roof, slid a few more feet in the mud, and settled. Diane! I'm okay. What the hell just happened, she said. We were still hanging upside down, held in place by our seatbelts. It was pitch black and my eyes had yet to adjust. The car battery must have gotten disconnected. I could hear water. I reached my hand up over my head to feel the headliner, which was much closer to my skull than it used to be. Diane, the car is filling up with water. We must have landed in the stream. What? I'm stuck. Kit, help me. Listen to me and do exactly as I say. Unfasten your seatbelt, open your door, and get out of the car. I I can't find the release. She was disoriented from being upside down. Take your right hand and put it on your seatbelt. Got it. Now follow the seatbelt till you find the... I heard a click, followed by the thud of her body landing on the headliner. She was out of her seat, found the door release, kicked her door open, and scrambled from the car. As soon as she opened her door, more water started pouring into the car. It's not that deep, don't worry, she called out to me. I got myself free from the seatbelt. My door was blocked, so I also climbed out through the passenger side door. We stood in the rain, on the bank of the stream, soaking wet and muddy. Kit, your car! I don't care about the car, are you okay? I think so. Shit, help me get the beer out of the car. We need to get it as far away as possible. We gathered up the cans we could find and ditched them. What the car had first impacted was an old fence post the size of a telephone pole, sticking about four feet out of the ground. Damn, I said. Hello? A man called to us from the road about six feet above us. We're here, I called out, hit a flashlight, and I waved my arms. Is everyone okay? He shouted. Yes, I think so. We didn't have any visible injuries. Kit, my mother is going to kill me, Diane said. Do you need a lift? There's a convenience store not far from here with a payphone. Yes, thank you, Diane shouted. We started to climb our way up the embankment. Wait, I forgot something, I said and ran back to the car and returned to Diane. Are you kidding me right now? She asked. What? It's my mom's. She'd be angrier about losing this than me and I held up the wooden tennis racket I had used earlier with Tony. It was my mother's from when she was in high school, still in its press, with the original cover. I think I was concussed. When I got home, I went inside, wet and muddy. My mother had friends over for dinner. What happened to you? she asked. Diane and I were in a car accident. What? How's the car? The car. The car she didn't buy or pay the insurance on. But yeah. Her first concern was for the car. Here, I said, and leaned the tennis racket against the wall next to her. I went to my bedroom, got changed, went to the bathroom and got cleaned up, and then went back to my room, locked my door, and went to bed. The next day, my mother expressed some concern for me, but I'll never forget that her initial reaction was about the car. I called the salvage yard to see when I should come and get my things. Because it had been upside down, it was automatically totaled. A police officer was waiting for me in his cruiser. Shit. He rolled down his window and said, get in the back. He had my insurance and registration information on a metal clipboard next to him on the front seat. 
I kept them both in my glove box with my hash pipe. You're very lucky, you know, he said flatly. Yes, officer. I spoke with the guy who found you. He said his headlights barely lit up your wheels. That's how he saw the accident. Yes, officer. The tow truck driver said he found a bunch of beer cans not far from the car. I noticed you have a cooler in the back. They yours by any chance? Fuck. Why didn't I just take the whole cooler and ditch it? No, officer. I lied. Why'd you have the cooler then? He pushed. I was playing tennis earlier that day. Yes, the tow truck driver told me you had your racket with you when he took you home. It's my mom's from when she was in high school, I said. For some reason that seemed to soften him. You're very lucky, he said again. Yes, officer. And he gave me a hard stare and said, If by any chance those were your beers, I want you to hear me, son. I've seen some incredibly ugly accidents. Don't be one. And he handed me the paperwork. You're free to go. I got out of his cruiser and he drove away. I searched my car front to back and up and down, but no pipe. Things were a bit tense between my mother and I for about a week. I didn't tell her any alcohol had been involved. I was a pleaser, but I wasn't stupid. She was hesitant to let me use her car, especially at night, which I understood. We both worked day shift, so I began carpooling with the assistant lab manager again. And in the evenings, I would bum rides with friends or just stay home and watch TV with my mother. It turned out we both liked quite a few of the same shows. Murder, She Wrote, Designing Women, Kate and Alley, Newhart, and our favorite, The Golden Girls. Life had given us a chance to pause and connect in new ways. We ate more dinners together while I didn't have a car. We went on walks together again. She opened up a bit about being lonely, but not wanting to date. All men want is a nurse. I've had enough of that in my life, she'd say. Our relationship was complicated. Aesop's fables would have been more complete if there'd been a parable about the narcissist and the empath. I invested so much energy in trying to make her happy and whole. Focusing on her well-being kept me from investing the energy in my own, which was my choice, how I was raised, and a function of my inability to do so. I wasn't yet ready, willing, or able to look inward at my damage, and I lacked the tools. Hello, I answered the phone. I knew it was my grandmother calling. Kit? Hello, sweetheart. How are you doing without your car? I'm okay. It's a pain, but I haven't until fall to get it figured out. Well, I want to give you something. I want to buy you a car. A new car. Nothing used. What? You're kidding. Oh my god, grandma, wow. I'm just so proud of the work you've done to bring up your grades, and I want to do this for you. Pick out a couple of cars you like, and let's figure out a price range. This is unbelievable. You, you don't have to do this, but you have no idea how much this means to me. Thank you so much. I didn't say anything to my mother, and in the end, settled on a Honda CRX HF. The small, sporty, two-passenger car was shaped a bit like a wedge and got almost 50 miles to the gallon. I spoke with my grandmother about it, and she approved the price. I was lying in my bed a few days later, flipping through the sales literature for my soon-to-be new car, when my mother burst into my room. I just got off the phone with my mother. She tells me she thinks she's buying you a car. She yelled at me. Yes, I said cautiously. Over my dead body. That's my money, she screamed. How is her money your money? I asked, genuinely confused. 
It's my inheritance. You have no right to spend my inheritance. She was literally red-faced and tears were welling in her eyes. I was stunned into silence by the level of crazy I just saw unfold before me. She slammed my bedroom door as she left. She called my aunt and shared this information. To my surprise, my aunt had the same reaction. They then both confronted my grandmother, telling her she had no place giving me a car, and tried their best to force her to back out of the offer. Instead, my grandmother sent me the check for the car, and sent my aunt a check for an equal amount. My mother was pissed. My aunt got a check, I got a check, and she got nothing. So in her mind, she was even further down on her inheritance money. My mother could not get past the concept that she was somehow paying for this car because she felt she was entitled to my grandmother's money through inheritance. I was profoundly disappointed to see this side of her. I'd seen this side of my father when he blew through his mother's money once he'd gotten access to it, but I didn't think my mother had this in her. The goodwill we developed, bonding over TV, walks, and dinners, was instantly erased. Well, I hope you can afford the insurance, she said to me snidely. You better pay for full insurance because you won't be getting another free car. Have you seen that car? I doubt I'll live if I'm ever in a serious accident. I said it because it was honestly what I believed. If I were in a serious accident, I'd be a dead man. But my reply shut her up, which I was quite pleased about. I went to the dealership and ordered the car. About six weeks later, I picked it up, and thanks to my grandmother, paid for the whole thing. It was one of the happiest days of my life. Lance from the computer lab and I had become good friends that year, and the first road trip I took was with him. We packed up the car and drove to see my grandmother in the apartment she'd moved into after selling her house. Get in here and let me hug you, she said when she answered the door. We entered the apartment. It smelled just like their house had. Cigarettes, coffee, and fresh-baked goods. I recognized the furniture, and my grandfather's artwork was everywhere. You've gotten so tall. I can't even reach your cheeks anymore. I leaned forward. She pinched them both and gave me a kiss. You boys get settled in the spare room, and I'll make lunch. Wait, I have to show you the car, I said. She came out to the parking lot and gave it the once-over. Want to go for a ride? Oh no, it's so low to the ground I don't think I'd be able to get out of it. I know the feeling. I'm so tall every time I get out of the thing I feel like I'm being born again. She found that very funny. She was so happy. We both were. It was the best visit we'd ever had together. We stayed for a long weekend and headed back. I loved that car. I was so grateful. What a gift she'd given me independence, freedom, and it allowed me to keep going in college without being sidetracked. There was no public transit where I lived of any kind. I wouldn't have been able to easily continue with school if not for her thoughtfulness and generosity. I was so lucky to have her in my life. She paid attention, and she gave her love and support to me so freely. I only wish I'd known that would be the last time I'd see her. Epilogue. I have been asked many times recently how my rape impacts my intimate relationships, and I find I don't like my answer, because my answer is profoundly. It interferes with my ability to combine both physical and emotional intimacy. This is a common response to sexual trauma, and although I haven't gotten to the part where the memories of my father's sexual abuse have resurfaced, I have to contend with that abuse of trust and loss of innocence. 
as I have to contend with my brother having abused my trust when he pimped me out to his friends. And when I finally met someone I felt was an equitable, emotional, and sexual partner who raped me. Pip further damaged my ability to deeply trust another person when it comes to intimacy, whether emotional or sexual. I remember once in therapy having this aha moment around my coping mechanisms. I'd always felt my reactions were absolutely unique and custom to my own personal experience, but it turns out we're all pretty much monkeys, sitting at typewriters, banging away, trying to write Shakespeare. Which is to say, we're not at all that unique in our coping mechanisms, and thankfully so, as it makes working through the trauma a bit more formulaic. After the last two episodes, I've had a couple of conversations with my husband about how my experiences hold me back from being able to connect my emotional love for him to our physical sex life. The biggest impact my trauma has had on me is that it has created an automatic response of dissociation and compartmentalization. I can deeply connect to him emotionally and intellectually, but when it comes to our sex life, my trauma, even with all the work I've done, asserts itself and I find it uncomfortable and difficult to be present. This is a common trauma response. As a man, the data shows I am predisposed to my ability to compartmentalize, which, for me, fosters my ability to then dissociate. I could more comfortably have sex with a stranger, transactionally and without any emotional context, than I can with my own husband, whom I love. Going back through my rape has made me realize that it was the final straw in my early string of traumas where something shifted inside me. I spoke with my therapist about this the other day and was surprised to learn that all the younger versions of myself, my inner children, are terrified of the vulnerability inherent in reconnecting my emotional and physical selves. Just discussing it with her triggered my parasympathetic system and my heart rate, respiration, and perspiration elevated. The thought of it terrifies me still on some level. It's my deep fear of being hurt. I vacillate between I'm the best me that I can be and a constant desire to apologize to my husband for not being able to be as present and sexual with him as I would like and as I feel he deserves. He tells me I'm enough. He reminds me I'm not broken. But my inner children are not yet convinced on this point. Still more work to do on my road to recovery. Diane and I didn't hang out again after that summer. It was a combination of things, I think. Her relationship with Bill, whom she would later marry and then divorce, took a dark turn. The car accident could have easily cost one of us our lives. And in a way, I invaded her in an unimaginably intimate way by blurting out my knowledge that she'd had an abortion, knowledge I shouldn't have had. I want to be clear about that car accident. Drinking on the back roads in the rain was a reckless and stupid thing to do. At that age, I felt invincible. The officer knew I was lying about the beer. I don't know if he gauged my character or believed in second chances. Either way, he gave me a second chance, and I took it and his comments to heart. Regarding my mother's reaction to the news that her mother was going to give me money to buy a new car, I'd never experienced anything like that from her. The notion that a child would count the money of a parent as their own, when they had not died, was foreign to me. And my mother's reaction? Repugnant. An emotionally intact parent would have been happy for their child's good fortune. 
They would have been grateful to their parent who was enabling their child in a way they themselves could not. I didn't have the means to buy another car without leaving college and working full time. And my mother would have wished that future for me rather than to see me continue to succeed. She would have also made out better in the end if she had just kept her righteous indignation to herself. Instead of being out just over $10,000, she was out twice that because she forced her mother's sense of fairness, which prompted her to write her other daughter a check for the same amount from my mother's inheritance. My mother was deeply bitter over this. My trip with Lance truly was a great trip. The trip itself and the visit with my grandmother He really enjoyed her kindness, and I was able to share with him all of the things I felt made my grandparents' hometown great. I got to share with him so many of my grandfather's contributions at his work and throughout the community, as well as where I had done this or that over the years on summer vacations. He was such a good sport about the whole thing. And my grandmother, her pride and love for me, her generosity of spirit, and in the end, finances... I don't know what she knew or didn't know about her health, but in buying me that car, she gave me a bridge to my future I didn't know at the time I would need. Her gift allowed me to survive a very dark period that was about to visit my life. I love her still, and I will love her forever.